You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee following the weekend to end all weekends. It is almost the Fourth Cup of Coffee podcast today because all weekend we hosted Behold, a women's worship event, although that tagline doesn't really cover it. A lot of worship, also a lot of teaching, a lot of prayer. Uh, my wife, Kelsey, spoke. Jennifer Roberts spoke. Sarah Haggerty spoke. Uh, others. Then we had um, Laura Hackett Park led worship one afternoon. We had Katie Reed one night. Uh, Rachel Fagutu led quite a bit. It was a great, great event, but it culminated on Saturday night with baptisms. And so we had scheduled uh, someone to be baptized. You know, you fill the tank. It's like, is any, was there anybody? Well, we had one person. And by the time the service started, we had three people. And once we started, spontaneously, people, some of them had never been baptized. Some had, but had wrestled with things along the way. And they said, I just want to redo this, not because the Lord requires it, but just out of uh, a, a testimony of wanting to start over. When it was done, we had baptized like 25 people. We don't exactly know the number. I'm embarrassed to say that, but as close as we can get is about, about 25. In fact, it looked like it was winding down. And so I loaded up our van because we had a bunch of stuff at the venue, which was not far from our house. Loaded up our van, loaded up my kids, took them back home so they could go to bed, unloaded the van, went back. They're still baptizing people. Like it's still going on. I think we went to about 1130 that night, which then we had church the next morning somewhere else. We had to break everything down, of course, and, and reset up. Um, of course, most churches do that anymore. But boy, it was a great weekend. It was so, so fun. So fun to see the women in our church lead with excellence. Um, I'm telling you, they've got some horsepower. And it was it was a blast to just be a part and hang out. Hey, also, I want to make mention that the teaching from those sessions will be available probably by the time you get this podcast. If you go to thebridgekc.church, you will find a link there to Behold, probably in the front page, and it will have all the audio teaching files. We're not going to podcast them. We're just going to host them there. You can go find them there and uh, download them if you like. Hope that you found those helpful. Today we have part two of our series called The Letters. We are working through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Um, We did a bit of an intro last week, and this week it is the letter to the church at Ephesus, beginning of chapter two. Stay with us. Revelation chapter two. It's not a normal bridge, (laughs) just not. Just not. I, uh, I got a new camera, not a new phone. I call it a camera because who calls anybody anymore? I, I got a, a, it's a new, it's got a phone feature on it, but really it's a camera. Um, and it's got a macro lens. Macro lenses are amazing. You take pictures of things up really close, really close. And you know what I discovered? You take a picture of something really close, everything's fascinating up close. Like I've quit taking pictures of my dog and my kids. Taking pictures of things like the ends of crayons. They look like a moonscape. It's just, a, it's really cool. Because up close, almost everything is way more complicated than you think it is when you're holding it at arm's distance. 
Uh, I had a situation a couple of weeks ago where I was frustrated with somebody. Nobody here, I promise. I would tell that story in another setting. But uh, it was somebody outside of here. And I was frustrated with them. And somebody who's very wise in my life made the observation, well, Randy, you, you know, the situation, people are complicated. And uh, it's actually true. People are complicated. Most people's situations are more complicated than we think they are. And they are both good and bad at the same time. They are not both of those things. They're both and. And because churches are made up of people, churches are complicated. And we've got to trust the hand of the surgeon in the Holy Spirit to separate the good from the bad from within our body, call it out, pull out what is the cancerous parts, leave the good parts that we might live. The seven, cha- uh, seven churches of Revelation each get a letter, and these letters mention good and bad. And they don't mention the positive to defray the negative. It mentions both that they might be considered. It is not the Lord saying, I got three goods and one bad, you're up to, you win. He's not grading on the curve. He wants the bad to be addressed so that the good can shine forth in a pure way. Last week we talked about Revelation 1 and how the book of Revelation reveals, hence revelation or uncovers, Jesus as judge of all the earth. We joined our voices. We talked about the voices of the martyrs saying, your judgments are true and good. And we talked about joining our voices with those. God does not need you to move mountains. He doesn't need you to work harder. He needs you to agree with him and what he's doing. That's what he's looking for. Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19 is this really sneaky invitation to agree with him. Because it says all of these wonderful things, and then it hooks us at the end. Psalm seven, uh, 19, 7 to 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. Everybody says, oh, I love that part. Reviving the soul. The testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Oh, we're like, sign me up for that. I like that. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Then at the end, the rules or the decrees or the judgments of God are true and righteous altogether. Eternity belongs to those who agree with what God is doing. Everybody else is at odds with it. Revelation 19. One and two, again, we touched on this last week. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. God have mercy on a generation that leans back and says, I love God, but I don't understand everything he's doing, and I'm a little bit at odds with him. The future belongs to those who say yes to what God is doing in the day. We can't stand with the multitudes and declare that his judgments at the end of the age are good and righteous when we can't stand in our own skin right now and read his word and take his corrections as righteous and true as well. If he's right for judging the earth, he's right for chastising us in our lifetime. We talked last week about if you're going to face a judge ultimately, the kindest thing you could ever encounter is a pretrial hearing where he sits down and tells you, this is what I have against you. These are the charges you're facing. 
And the seven letters of Revelation are the closest thing that the church gets to a pretrial hearing where the judge tips his cards and says, these are the things I'm holding against, and you now have time to get them right. I'm convinced, because I know pastors, that if you would have asked any of the leaders of these churches before they got the letters, how's the church going? Fine. Fine. Perfect? No, it's pretty good. Well, it makes you think that. Well, you know, my heart just feels, trust your mama, trust your friend, trust a stranger, do not trust your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Some of you have walked in this morning, and if you are pressed and say, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm pretty good. There's a couple things not so good. In my heart, I feel like I'm doing okay. Do not trust your heart. Trust the word. Churches of Asia Minor are given this gift of this perspective from God that they cannot have within themselves. So starting in Revelation 2, uh, we're just going to look at one letter this morning. Revelation 2, 1. The angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Talk about Ephesus for a minute. Ephesus was not Sheboygan, Michigan. It was not Midland, Texas. Nobody's in Sheboygan or Midland today because they just really wanted to be there. They, they, they got there with a job or something drew them there, but it's not exactly a, a destination. Tell your wife, where are we going on vacation? Sheboygan. You know, we're getting up in age. We could sell the house. We could cash out, buy a condo. Let's go to Midland, Texas. People don't do this. <laughs> Ephesus was different. Ephesus literally means desirable, and it was. It was one of the prime seaports of the ancient world. It was on several major highways. If you were going anywhere, you probably went through Ephesus, and you probably liked it. It was a beautiful place. In 52 A.D., 40 years before this was written, Paul plants a church in Ephesus. He visits, starts the church, and somewhere between two and four years later, he returns to them and spends several years there teaching in the city. We can read how it all went down in Acts 19. This is the church at Ephesus at its about the two-year mark. He, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some of them became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. So there's a conflict. He goes into the synagogue and he's teaching. And those that are really sold on tradition, they're not going to buy this. And sometimes the righteous and good thing to do is to back away from people who are full of unbelief. It says he took, took the disciples and reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannius. He rents a place. He goes out, finds a dance studio somewhere, and starts teaching. Goes on for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So he starts in the synagogue, but the religious leaders are stubborn, and uh, that religious spirit still operates today. Tradition pits itself against what is new and what God is doing. And these people who hold to traditions would say, well, they're comfortable and we like them, but really the traditions kind of give them power, and they didn't want to release those. So facing diminishing success among the religious people, he rents out a hall. And it was a good move because the church of Ephesus starts to grow. It says the entire region was impacted because of the work there in that little church. 
It was so impacted that the magicians in the area were coming and burning their books because they were so convicted. It was so impactful that the economy of the city was changed. In Acts 19, it talks about the silversmiths getting together and having this little clandestine meeting. I won't read the whole passage. You can write it down. You can read it later. But they get together and they say, we have to do something about this guy because people are turning from the idol worship that demands our silver, silver work and he's ruining the economy. They actually had a riot. Mostly peaceful. But a riot. And Paul moves on to the next city. When you plant a church at the crossroads, it affects people going every direction. It's, a, it's all the residents of Asia had heard the gospel. The bridge really is a church at the crossroads. Different streams coming in and out, different movements. There's a lot going on here. And it's going to affect a lot of different spheres. That is intentional. We do that on purpose. 20 years later, the church that he starts here at Ephesus remains very strong. Paul wrote to them in the book of Ephesians with great admiration for how they were organized and how hard they worked. But even then, he was seeing things that bothered him. And a couple of years later, he writes a letter to Timothy. And you have to wonder if under the conviction and the uh, power of the Holy Spirit, if he really knew that this letter was going to be out there. Because he writes to Timothy, I urge you, 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. He's like, Timothy, about the Ephesians, stick around, okay? Just park it there for a little while. It's going good. Don't, don't make a big deal out of it, but stick around because some of them are devoting themselves to myths and genealogies, and you're just going to watch that. You're like, wait a minute. I thought this church was awesome. It was, but it sounds like it's messed up. It was. It was both and. Churches are complicated because people are complicated, and later in, the, in Revelation 2, the Holy Spirit emphasizes the good and end emphasizes the bad. And he does it sandwich style. Kind of like when you have to give somebody bad news. Good stuff, bad stuff, good stuff. Okay? We're not going to look at it that way today. We're going to look at it, all the good stuff, then we're going to look at the bad stuff at the end. The good stuff, four observations that he makes in Revelation 2 about the church at Ephesus. Number one, and boy, this is appropriate, they were hard workers. Revelation 2, 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You stayed there till the end of the conference. You tore it all down, and you actually went to church the next morning. I see your works. Apparently, the people of Ephesus were the kind of people who would put their shoulder to the wheel and see it through to the end. People won't admit this, but honestly, a lot of people, we look at church kind of as a spectator sport. We look at it as watching, something we come and watch. But in Ephesus, it wasn't like that. They worked. It's been one of the greatest deceptions of the enemy to convince people that the kingdom moves forward on inactivity or lack of effort on our part. It's not how things get done. You know how we get all these great stories we got this morning? We carried pallets of water and rugs. and I mean, it, it was work. The Ephesians worked hard. They were so committed to the cause 40 years into the evolution of their church that it was still noted how hard they were working. I was so proud of the bridge this week, to those that set up chairs, carried flowers, the leadership of the thing, the planning, all of it. It was hard work, and the Lord was pleased with it. The second thing he commends the Church of Ephesians for was, you're committed to sound doctrine. 
And it's interesting that he says this because apparently it was they were a little concerned about this earlier. But it was a point Paul made about this. He said, concerning all of the churches, it's almost like Paul saw this challenge coming and he had warned Timothy and here they were. He actually mentions it in Acts 20. He's concerned about it. In 29 and 30, he goes back and he meets with the leaders of the Ephesian church. Paul says this, again, this is decades before John writes this. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. He goes, beware, there's going to be a doctrinal crisis here. There clearly was, but 30, 40 years later, they apparently have, have stand, stood true. They have listened to this prophetic warning because they have, they have stayed true to doctrine. There's something funny about young churches. They tend to attract people with strong theological positions that may be at odds with the church itself. It's true. Most church planters I know are wrestling with, okay, facility and disagreement on theology on stuff. Because people who have bounced from church to church might not consciously think it, but it's like, oh, I can have influence here. And so that's what happens. And they warned them against this, and the Ephesian church held the line for decades because of this warning. Revelation 2.2 says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You have weighed people who have taken the microphone, and you've said, wait a minute, hold on. And you've done the hard work of vetting them. You work hard, you hold close to doctrine, and you don't give up. He tells them you don't give up. Discouragement has always been the enemy of those that are tasked with changing the world. Anytime somebody has a great call, the thing they, they wrestle with in their heart normally is discouragement. What's the famous line from uh, It's a Wonderful Life? When Clarence, the angel, is being sent down to earth, the other angel tells him, there's somebody who really needs you. And Clarence goes, oh, is he sick? And the head angel goes, no, it's worse. He's discouraged. Discouragement has always been the wolf at the door. And it was setting in with intensity on the people in this age specifically because they remembered something that happened when Jesus was alive. You know, these, these, uh, those that remember Jesus hadn't, had not come to faith since his death, but those that were around during his ministry would tell the stories. Remember the time he walked on water? And the new people to the church are like, wait, 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 what? Oh, yeah, yeah, he walked on water. We saw it. Remember the time he healed the man's daughter? Remember the time that we got, the tomb was empty? Remember the time he ascended into the clouds and we all just stood and watched? Acts 1, 10 and 11, while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go to heaven. Although lately, as they're telling this story, in, it's, it's 90 AD, this story kind of bums them out. Because they thought he was coming back a lot quicker than this. And there's a general disgruntled discouragement in parts of the church. Because the angel said he's coming down like he went up they might have stood around there for part of the day. There's no sense of timing on that. 
Were they clear when he was coming back? You can just see the, the discussion. Is it, was he coming to, is it, is it today? No, well, we'll come back tomorrow. How, how many days until they begin to wonder, is he coming back at all? Now we're 40, no, no, we're 90s. This is the 90s. That happened in the 30s, 60 years later. Christ ascending into the clouds was as distant for the, the church at Ephesus as the 1960s are for us. And they're supposed to be, remember, is he coming back? In the time that had elapsed, people had grown really discouraged. And part of the reason they were discouraged is there was some element of belief that Jesus would return before John died. That's what they thought. And John is not getting any younger. Okay? They're propping him up. And there was concern if that was really true. Say, where did that rumor get started? Well, when Peter was told by Jesus that he was going to be martyred, Peter did what all of our children do and said, well, what about him? I'm going to be martyred. What about John? Jesus gets a little irritated with Peter and he says, what is it to you, Peter? I preached a whole message one time called, what's it to you? Based on that one line, what's it to you? What is it to you, Peter, if he lives until I return? Come follow me. Other disciples heard that and misinterpreted it. And they misinterpreted it to the point that John actually had to add a qualifier when he wrote his gospel. In John 21, 23, it said, So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but said, If it is my will that he remain. So John's like, Let me clear up. I didn't say I was going to, he didn't say I was going to live forever. He said, What if I did? But people believed that. And that rumor went around. And here's John in his 90s. Is he coming back? They're getting discouraged. Some are excited, others are discouraged. The ones that are excited are going to be discouraged when John dies. And yet the angel singles out the Ephesians and he says in Revelation 2, 3, I know that you are enduringly patient and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. You have, he's like, you there living in Overland Park, you have believed this since the 1960s. When I came to you and I told you I was coming back and you've held on to that and you've not grown discouraged. Weariness and disappointment in misunderstanding the timing of the Lord has served to decimate more believers than aggressive spiritual attack. Just getting your heart worn down. We have friends that have endured insane attack. Michael and Diane were pastors in San Francisco for 25 years. Lived in a little house south edge of San Francisco, raised eight kids there. Pastoring in San Francisco is probably every bit as weird as you imagine. A witch and a warlock bought the house next door. Not professional, just amateur witches and warlocks. They had side jobs. But they were pretty committed to their craft. They were so committed to their craft that when they discovered that Michael and Diane were pastors... They started doing all they could to curse their family. They would come out and stand in their front yard while Michael and Diane's kids waited for the school bus and cast spells out loud at their kids. Kids just waiting to get on the bus. He's got a warlock yelling at him. When the kids would go in the backyard, 
The family would go in the backyard and cast spells over the fence. It got so bad that they filed charges for harassment. The warlock went away to jail for a little while. Came back, moved in the same house, went in the backyard, started doing the exact same thing. But they pastored for 25 years. They have hearts tender before the Lord. They stood up under tremendous, tremendous attack. But for every Michael and Diane I know, I know a hundred pastors who got discouraged and walked away just because they got tired, just because they got worn down. Because fatigue will make people quit. There are parts of the Ephesians story that I want to exhibit, and this is one. I do not want to grow discouraged when things don't go the way I think they're going to go. I'm just now getting old enough to realize they often don't. Slow learner. But I look back at how many things that I think, okay, it was going to go that way. Oh, there it goes. How much of that was the Lord's fault? I can't, I can't. He's been faithful through the whole thing, no matter where it goes. I don't want to hook my heart to circumstances. And he says to the Ephesian church, you did not grow discouraged. You work hard. You guard your doctrine. You don't give up. And you take personal responsibility for your walk with God. Now, this is where we make the jump, okay? We're going to jump forward in in Revelation 2. I told you, he says, good, bad, good. We're just going to skip the bad, but we're coming back. Don't get your hopes up. Revelation 2, 6. Yet this you have. He goes, you still got this going for you. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. (laughs) He's like, I hate those guys. There's some debate about the Nicolaitans, about what this exactly means, but this much we do know. It comes from two Greek words put together that talk about the priesthood or leadership and the laity, regular people. The Nicolaitans put those together, and they refer to those who are believed to have been instrumental in drawing that thick, dark line between the professional ministers in the early church and everyone else. It is from where we get the word, the lay people. The ministers, the profet- you ever heard that? The lay people. It's not really a biblical concept. It's goofy. Okay? I was in a church a while back, and I saw they had an extensive office suite for the staff, which staff needs offices. I get it. It was labeled the executive offices, and down the hall, there was a, uh, a room with a... a, a photocopier and a cutting board and it was labeled it had a plaque lay workers room and I know that nobody thought about this when they put the signs up but I wanted to switch the signs really bad because where did we get this idea that the professionals are different than the lay people I don't even like the word I have a hard time saying it Since the early church, there have been those in ministry who would like to look at ministry as a position over people rather than a position and opportunity to serve people. And ministry becomes a source of power and pride to them. In the platform, in their mind, it makes them something special. And I I don't even like the language around it. You know, I've I've heard people refer to the pastor as the man of God. I hope so, but not the only I, I don't even like, I heard somebody say the other day, you know, it was somebody prominent who had done something stupid and lost their role and deserved lo- losing their role. But the, the language around it was they're stepping down from ministry. And I understand why people say that, 
but you do know it's not a step up to ministry. You should have stepped down when you went into ministry. The Brit... I just hear that... I'm sorry, guys. I'm really... I'm, I'm, I have a lot of energy on this, okay? The word minister related to deacon is to serve, okay? You want a platform? Serve. That's it. Congratulations. You got your platform. This is not the platform I was thinking of. Welcome to ministry. We are not going to build a wall between the professionals, and I'm using it as a, the term as a joke now, the lay people, okay? I'm just now officially calling you all into ministry. We are all in this together. Next week, we'll all stand up here. Nobody will sit there. It'll be fun. No, I mean, this is just one part of, of, of what ministering is, okay? This is a little part of what ministry is. The bridge is not going to be a wall. He's going to connect people, not divide them. We're going to build a bridge, make the devil pay for it. Thanks, Sal. Appreciate that. Here's what's wrong with that thinking. Really, ministry is service. We talked about that already. The other thing is, a priest or a pastor is not responsible for your walk with God. You can glean from one. You can grow. They're there to challenge you. But if the word is out in front of you and the Holy Spirit's in your heart, you're on your own. We love you. We want to help you. But you're responsible for that. And those, those people, those Nicolaitans, the priests like it or the, the pastors liked it because they could lord it over people. And the people below liked it because they could blame whoever was on the stage for why their life wasn't going well. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, yeah, I hate those guys. <laughs> it's just funny to me. They drive me nuts. That's not what I was thinking when I said on this rock I will build my church. Here we are, 2,000 years into Christianity, people, we still have people lording ministry roles over other. And Ephesians says, that's nonsense. God says, you're right, that's nonsense. So they work hard, they don't give up, they guard against bad doctrine, they take personal responsibility. Let's jump back just for a second to that one bad thing, because we want the Lord to root this out of us. Even if we hear these other four, we go, I'm all in with those other four, I hate the Nicolaitans too. There's this one thing he mentions in the middle, because we are complicated. Revelation 2.4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, when this verse is preached, it's usually preached with a kind of romantic overtones. And we're all told to remember that time we fell in love in those early days and the butterflies and all. And there's something to that, but I think the greater lesson here to the Ephesian church is that they were, it's interesting, they were able to do all of these other things with no love in their heart. They could work hard. They could not be discouraged. They could hate the Nicolaitans. They could, do, they could throw conferences. They could do all the stuff and have hearts that were actually void of love. You read that, you go, how do you do that? People can do a lot in a loveless marriage. In a loveless marriage, they can pay the bills, they can work 50 hours a week, they can raise the kids, they can go to the school programs, but in the dark of night, it wears on them. Even doing all the right things, even the admirable things done apart from love is a hollow existence. 
And sometimes we look at this and we portray it as the natural trajectory of a love relationship. Remember your first love and all that? No, no, no. That's not the point he's making here. It's not like the the church of Ephesus grew distant with Jesus over time. Scripture says they abandon it. They abandon it. This is not falling out of love with Jesus. This is walking away from him. This is not growing cold towards your spouse. This is getting in your car and just driving away and abandoning the faith. Now, people who leave their spouses probably don't start with that intention. It begins with a little disillusionment, a little discouragement, but eventually it leads to a decision. Do I stay or do I go? And they make the decision to go. What is the fix for life at that point? It's not a marriage seminar. You know, oh, you've left your wife? Have you tried date night? Date night's not going to fix that train wreck. The guy that is so cold in his heart towards his wife needs more than date night or a marriage seminar. He needs repentance. Like that's where that's got to start. You got to turn the car around. And in Revelation 2, 5, he directs them for their lovelessness towards the Lord. He said, remember then from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I'll come to you. I'll remove your lampstand from He's like, you see this diorama that I built for you with the seven lampstands and how amazing it is? That one's yours. And if you don't turn the car around, I'm turning off the gas. We're going to remove that lampstand. Love is what all of this doing is about. And if we abandon it because other things take our attention, the answer is not, will Jesus woo my heart back to you? No, the answer is we turn the car around and we repent to turn 180 degrees. It could be that we are completely justified in the pain that we feel or our irritation towards others. It could be that we're justified in that we are busy or we could be completely justified that we don't notice what's going on. But Jesus lived through all that. He lived through pain, he lived through busyness, and he still noticed people, and he still loved them, and he still loved his father. We are complicated, but our good complications do not negate the ones the Lord is trying to change. I want to ask if Rachel would come back for just a moment. Revelation 2, 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember, that hear, that word is similar to do. You hear it, do it. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Now he addresses this to all of the churches, not just to Ephesians. So he's addressing this to us. So you, if you conquer, you will enter into communion and be able to eat from the tree of life. The word conquer in the New Testament often talks about being saved or it talks about the idea of sanctification. But in the book of Revelation, it has a different twist. It talks about being faithful to the end. And those that are faithful to the end conquer all of the things they've struggled with along the way. Stand with me for a moment. Father, we ask that you would make us people who are conquerors. We confess our own complication, Lord. Even as we want to hear you talk about the things that you see in our life that are good, we invite you as the Holy Spirit surgeon to search us all the way through and cut out the cancer. 
And Father, if we are guilty of doing this stuff, lacking love, right now, as a church, as individuals, we commit to turning the car around. We chart our course for love. Lord, don't let all of the doing of the past week have been for nothing. Don't let us all the guarding of the doctrine be for nothing. We set our sails to be full of the love of God, to motivate and press us through. Right before we close, I just want to step back and speak to that issue of discouragement. It resonated with some of you. Some of you are weary. Maybe completely unrelated to the things of the Lord in your life, but that weariness seeps in and it affects everything. I want to pray for you. It's right where you stand this morning. You're tired. You feel discouragement setting in. Just lift your hand. I want to pray for you where you are. Tired. Several hands up. Father, I speak courage, an infusion of joy, a deep well of love to those of our body that are heavy hearted. Lord, we want to guard them against the discouragement that the devil throws their way. So, would you minister to them right now? change things. You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Bolander and I am glad that you are joining us again this week. You know, we had a great Sunday yesterday. I mean, I know pastors are kind of supposed to say that, but I'm going to be really honest with you. When it's not great, I'll tell you. What was so fun for me yesterday was we tried something that we will not be able to do forever. Our congregation is just not that large right now. Uh, I mean, it's growing. Fun things are happening. But it's not like we have this massive mob of people. And there are things you can do with a smaller group that you can't do with a bigger group. I was thinking on the way to church about Revelation 12, where it talks about people overcoming by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So I shared that scripture at the outset when I got up to preach after worship. And I said, you know, part of being an overcomer is telling our own story to ourselves, to our kids, to our families. And it was family day, so we had a lot of the kids in with us uh, for a change. And I said, this would be good for our church family. It would be good for our kids if a few would just jump up and give us a few sentences about how they came to know Jesus or what he's telling them right now. These are those moments when pastors wonder, is this going to work? Like, what if nobody moves? We had six people jump up pretty quickly. The first four men, which culture tells us doesn't happen, to share how they came to know Jesus. Some said, hey, I was raised in church. I've known Jesus since I was a small child. Somebody else said, hey, I was in prison for the third time. When I got to know the Lord, uh, a little girl stood up and said, 
I was adopted. I was in, in being cared for by a family that didn't know Jesus. And this family that knows Jesus adopted me. And that's how I came into the faith. And it was like the highlight of the Sunday morning. And I preached after that. So I'm telling you, this was the highlight. Anyway, we don't have it recorded. Uh, we did web stream it, but it was fairly personal. And I just didn't feel uh, right about putting it out on the podcast without uh, everyone consenting and didn't have time to chase all that down. So trust us. It was really, really, really great. There are things that you see when you're there live that do not make the podcast. Speaking of which, today, part three of our series, Letters. We're going to talk about the church in Smyrna, what they faced in the way of persecution, how they got through it. Stay with us. So Becky and Bruce invite us to go see From Patmos filmed. Okay, written by our friend Justin Rizzo. We wrote it about 10 years ago. It's about John living on the Isle of Patmos, what we're studying here. And it's this incredible musical. If you've never been to the filming of a play, it is different than going to a play. And it is different, for one thing, is because it's long. Because between every scene, they stop and they reset things, and they move the cameras and they fix the lights and cut, and off we go again. And so a play that runs about two hours took about four hours to film. That was not clear to me when we went. Uh, it was so long that they actually served snacks in the middle, which was a lifesaver. We just all got out and we got some snacks and went back in and hunkered down. And uh, it was cold and it was rainy outside and I, I was tired when I got there. And there were points at which I just, you know, it got to be a long evening. Which is why the end of the play caught me so off guard. After filming 20 scenes, being in and out of the theater, being, you know, having snacks and the whole bit, you're kind of done. And in the last scene, it underscored how John's life was so much not about tragedy, so much not about even a story, but it was about a man. And Jesus appears to him and calls him to up to see in through the door open in heaven. And I was just so moved as these characters played this out as John was so deeply in love with the person of Jesus. You know, the things that elicit the deepest heart responses for us are people. You can go to the Grand Canyon. It's beautiful. It's epic. Very few people tear up. Some do, but not many. You can go to a big city that you've always wanted to visit. Very few people are emotionally overcome. But you go to the airport, every plane that empties, somebody has tears in their eyes. Because people are what move our heart the most. And this morning, I don't want to miss the fact that what we are reading about and studying here primarily is a person. It's in the context of a story, and it's in the context of detail and information, but it is about a man. No one ever has or does or will love you like Jesus loves you. Nobody. So in this series, we're looking at the letters of Revelation and the book that reveals Jesus as judge of all the earth. He judges everyone, but specifically, he also judges us. And he starts by speaking to real people in real churches and the issues that churches will struggle with down through the ages. When you look at churches that are struggling and things are going bad, and you go, how did that happen? Have you read the book of Revelation? Have you read these letters? Because these issues are in the, the stories of the letters of Revelation. 
In studying this, I've ran across theologians who are convinced that these seven letters represent seven ages of the church, and they're very distinct. And there are good people who love Jesus who believe this. I don't believe it. They've got to use a hammer to make it fit. And I read these letters and I go, sometimes I'm in the church of Smyrna. Sometimes I'm in Laodicea. Like I see myself in these letters and I think you'll see yourself too. Last week we studied the church of Ephesus, the people who worked hard, guarded against false doctrine, and managed to do it all with no love in their hearts. It's remarkable what you can do just out of sheer grit with no love in your heart. And in the end, it doesn't matter. Today, we're going to look at the church of Smyrna, starting in Revelation 2, chapter 8. We'll go about to 11, but looking first at, at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, Smyrna, what's the story about Smyrna here? Smyrna really is part of a metropolis. It's about 40 miles north of Ephesus, the church that we talked about last week. So if you go 40 miles, it's not that far. People who in Smyrna have probably been to Ephesus and vice versa. It's 200,000 people, so the edges of them have almost grown together. If you live in North Ephesus, your target might be in South Smyrna. Okay, I mean, it's that close. You would go back and forth a little bit. But it's very distinct from Smyrna. Now today, the, what was Smyrna is now surrounded by a city in Turkey called, uh, let me get the, word, the name right, I had it. Ismar. And Ismar now is about 4 million people. It's a massive city. But Smyrna was a beautiful city of about 200,000 people, and it was like a crash course in idol worship. They had one street in Smyrna called the Golden Street, where they had five massive temples to different gods. You could, it was like, a, it was like a, a, uh, uh, idol worship mall. You could just go from one to the next. Different idols in different massive temples, although none of them really carried a whole lot of weight by the time this was written. People were going to those temples mostly for entertainment, and it was kind of a civic thing, but they weren't necessarily worshiping these gods, although it was a major part of, of the culture. Because the Smyrnans, if you would call them that, I don't know what to call them, Smyrnans, Smyrnians, whoever they were, they had evolved in their minds a little bit, and now their real focus was on the worship of the Roman emperor. If you jump back 300 years from where this was written, about 200 BC, Smyrna, this city, built a temple to Dia Roma, or what they called the spirit of Rome. They built a temple to all that Rome stood for. And I don't know, maybe they sacrificed in that temple, maybe they stood in songs, sound like, you know, saying, I'm proud to be a Smyrna, and where at least I know I'm free. I don't know. I don't know. But they worshipped the spirit of Rome there. And once the spirit of Rome was worshipped, it wasn't much of a jump to worship the dead emperors of Rome. Because their faces are on our coins, and we've got all these great stories about them, and surely they were better men than we were. And so they started worshipping those who had founded and established Rome. Once you worship the dead emperors, it's another little small step to worship the living emperors. And then to demand worship as evidence of political allegiance and of civic pride. That all really turned the corner about 44 BC. 44 BC, Caesar Augustus dies. Caesar Augustus was larger than life. He spent most of his reign out at war, conquering Europe. 
He, he told uh, the Roman consul, we're going to battle the Gauls. The Gauls are going to come and invade. If we don't beat them, they're going to beat us. And he commenced to march across Europe, and everybody he met, he decided, were Gauls. Who's that? Gauls, get them! And that was kind of the war plan for Caesar throughout his life. When he dies in 44 BC, his son Augustus recognizes that everybody thinks his dad was like a god. And Augustus capitalizes on that. 44 AD, Halley's Comet crosses the sky. When it does, Augustus looks up to it. Caesar's dead. He goes, that's my dad. He's a god. He was here. Now he's there. And if he's a god, guess what? I'm a god. And they made the jump from worshiping the emperors who were dead to those who were alive. Now, it's about 130, 150 years after Augustus taking that opportunistic jump, and 300 years after worshiping governmental leaders. 300 years of worshiping the government will mess a brother up. Like, it will goof up a society. Now, not everybody believed it, but pretending even that the emperor was God gave them economic advantages and gave them a way to live that they wouldn't have if they did not agree. So people started piling on accolades to their governmental officials. Everyone in Smyrna needed to worship the emperor. But all that really meant was paying a tax, no kidding, paying a tax and burning a pinch of incense once a year while saying Caesar is Lord. That was the extent of their emperor worship. Seems simple, seems easy, sign here. But the Christians wouldn't do it. It's precisely what the Christians wouldn't do. And because they wouldn't endorse other false gods in the form of the emperor, they were persecuted. Of all of the false gods to come against Jesus, the god of politics seems like it might be the most problematic at times. And they had done it for 300 years. And I say that not being anti-politician, we, we're actually very interested in politics. We watch politics like some of you watch baseball. We yell at the screen. We throw things. Okay, I mean, like, we're kind of into that. But worship of it will lead you down a path you don't want to go. Most people in the culture would bow, but for those who did not bow, the assumption was there's something wrong with those people. And we'll get to what that meant in a minute. What else do we know about Smyrna? Phenomenal wealth in the city. The name of the city is related to the word myrrh, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Myrrh was something that was both great and terrible in that it smelled wonderfully, but it was used essentially as a replacement for embalming fluid. It was beautiful, but it would mask the smell of death, and it brought a strange sense of beauty to tragedy. Now, myrrh was not just an export. That's how they made their money, but it was a needed thing for the church because tragedy was a part of life for Christians in Smyrna at the time of the writing of this letter. Because of the emperor worship, Christians were often persecuted to death. At the time of the writing of Revelation, John, again, is on Patmos, remember? And he's been sent there by the emperor Domitian. Domitian took this emperor worship thing to a whole nother level. Domitian had himself declared in the ruling body as God the Lord. He declared himself to be Lord of the earth, invincible. At one point, he insisted his name was glory or holy or thou alone. Now, Christians without character, we're not going to do this. Although I'm sure some of them said it. Just, just 
burn the incense and whisper it, cross your fingers, you know, we got to live here together. But by and large, Christians would not do that, so they were very familiar, the church in Smyrna, they were very familiar with martyrdom, being persecuted unto death. And I don't mean this happened for a season. This happened for decades where they would be martyred. The most famous member of the Smyrna church would have been the bishop of Smyrna, was appointed by John, as John was an old man, and, and this man was a young man. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp. You'll remember that. It sounds like a fiberglass fish. Okay? Polycarp. You're laughing, but you'll remember. Polycarp was alive about 130, 150 AD, and they went to martyr him, and they were going to burn him at the stake. Now, stake burning 101 says you nail the victim to the post because they don't like to stay there. It gets hot. Polycarp, when he went to be sacrificed or he went to be martyred, told them this, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. He's like, let me just hold the post. They're like, no, no, we'll nail you on there. Now the nails are for you. I, I can do this. He holds on to the post. They light the fire. His body does not burn adequately. They spear him through the side. He loses his life. And you might, you might read that and go, what a waste. What a waste here. But you know what Polycarp's name really means? It doesn't mean fiberglass fish. His real name means much fruit. You never know what fruit looks like or how it's born. The most amazing fruit in our lives often comes from most painful, difficult times. And we all die of something. When you die for the right things, the result is a legacy that bears fruit. So this is the nature of Smyrna and a little window into the pain that they have been suffering for decades. How does this letter begin? Jesus introduces himself, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. To Ephesus, he described himself as the one who walks among the lampstands. But he tells them, I know, I know your works. I see you. I am present. I'm not at a distance. So the Smyrnans, he declares himself to be the first and the last. It's a bit of a strange phrase, but it would not have been unfamiliar to those in Smyrna. Smyrna had a massive Jewish population who had migrated there because of business. And multiple times, Isaiah the prophet uses the phrase, the first and the last, to describe the Messiah. So when the, he says, I am the first and the last, the Smyrnans know who he is talking about. When you are the first and the last, the middle takes on a different meaning. When you have perspective of the beginning and the end, what happens in the middle is different. Those of you that have children, you watch your children, and at times they think certain things are the end of all days, right? Like they are just overwhelmed with this massive whatever, insert crisis of a third grader or fifth grader or ninth grader. But because you're a mom or a dad and you, you remember what life was like before and after, you've got a bit of perspective. And you realize that's manageable. The perspective Jesus brings, he goes, I was the first and last before history started. After it's over, I was there. So why do you think what happens in the middle is suddenly so altering or so life-changing? He said, I have perspective you don't have. Many of us have felt the pain of being stuck in the middle. And oh, how is this going to work out? He's like, I'm the first and the last. I see how this ends. I was dead and I came to life. 
He said, there are some of you who are dying for your faith. I, 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 I kind of was the leader in that. I died for who I was. I came back to life. And he goes on in verse 9 to say, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Let's talk about that phrase, I know, for a minute. Is there anything more off-putting than somebody who comes up to you when you're going through it, who has not gone through it, and says, I know what it's like. You just want to slap them. No, you don't. You don't know what it's like. You can say you feel bad. You can say you're sorry. You can express sympathy. You can pray for me. You give me a gift card. I don't care. You can't say you know. And it's actually a little offensive. I have learned in pastoring to be very careful what to say to people as they go through crisis. Because if you become so familiar with it, and you haven't been there, that's hard. You can love them and you can minister to them, but don't say you know unless you know. And to all seven churches of Revelation, he says, I know. I know what you're going through. I know where you're at. And I understand. He looks at us. He sees us. He loves us. And he says, I know. That thing that keeps you up at night, he knows. The, the thing that haunts you, of, I don't know how this is going to work out, he knows. One of the most comical things about being a parent is your ability to see how things are going to go in advance, right? Your kids come up with this great new game, and you look at it, and you go, that is insanely dangerous. We have to stop that game or just call ahead to the ER because something's getting, you know. And they don't always understand that you know, but you know. Jesus, throughout history, has looked at people and he's known. There's a story in Mark 10 where he's approached by a wealthy man who wants to know what it means to serve him. And before Jesus starts talking to the guy, he knows. He knows the guy has a sincere heart. He knows the guy is very vested in his wealth. And he knows that when he lays it out to him, this guy's probably going to walk away. He's a mixed bag and Jesus knows. And he says in Mark 10, 21, Jesus looking at him, he loved him. He loved him. He knew, but he loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Now, how did this turn out? Most of us know. The man struggled. He walked away. What would he have done if he understood that Jesus knew? Would he have responded differently if he understood that Jesus knew what it was about to cost him? Jesus looks at you, he sees the good, he sees the struggle, and he, he knows. You can let your heart, heart, the wall around your heart down. He understands what he's asking you. In this case, here's what he sees. Revelation 2, 9, the second part of the verse says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, when you read the word tribulation in this context, you can actually replace that with another word. <laughs> Some of you are going, good. <laughs> Any word you have, I'll take. All right, you can replace the word tribulation with the word trouble. That's what it means. Is the tribulation the seven-year period at the end of the age? Yes. Is the great tribulation the last three and a half years? Yes. But there is a sense of tribulation or trouble that will visit us within our lifetime. He's not referring to either of those. He's, he's talking about what they will face in their lifetime. And of course, they did not face the great tribulation at the end. He's saying, I know what you're going through. This is not the tribulation with a capital T, but it is trouble. 
and it is a tribula tribulation time. He saw and he understood their persecution, their fear, and their trials, and he knew that even though the end of the age would be more significantly difficult than this, what they were struggling with right now was real to them. And knowing that it was going to be worse later was no consolation for them right now. It's no encouragement to somebody, when you're going through a bad time for somebody to say, somebody else will have it worse. Like, that doesn't help me. And he says, I know your trouble or your tribulation. He also says, I know your poverty. Smyrna, as we said, as a city was rich, but the church of Smyrna was poor as church mice. Because in that context, if you were not going to bow to the emperor, you were cut out of business, you were cut out of any kind of commerce, you were cut out of any interaction, you lost everything. Now, poor has varying degrees, doesn't it? Do you have a friend who complains about being poor, and then you look at him and go, eh. You know, in high school, your friend always never had any money, but always managed to upsize their fries. Where's this coming from, you know? Your friend now who talks about his times are tough, it's like, you went to Cancun for three weeks and you got two brand new cars, like, which is fine. I've, if, if you went to Cancun, good for you. But he's like, you know, poor has degrees. You cannot overstate how poor the church of Smyrna was. The, the word that they use there, it means destitute. They are scrambling for bread on a day-to-day -day basis. Because of the emperor worship and that cult of government, to commit your life to Jesus publicly in this day meant you gave up everything. But choosing poverty over godlessness tended to clarify their priorities in a way that a life of excess does not. They're poor, but they're committed to the point of martyrdom. Martyrdom is a hard sell to people with a lot of worldly goods. It just is. It's not that we wouldn't be willing to die for Jesus, but we're looking at a lot of stuff we have to lose. And when we have a lot to lose, for some reason, we think twice about laying down our lives. Heard a story about a hillbilly preacher who was approaching one of his hillbilly parishioners. A lot of hillbillies in this story. It's important for the story. And he was challenging this hillbilly parishioner's faith, and he said, uh, Jim Bob, if you had $300, would you give $100 to the Lord? Jim Bob had never seen $300 in one spot in his life. But he said, Pastor, I believe I would do that. He said, okay, Jim Bob, if you had three horses, would you give one horse to the Lord so that I could ride to church? He said, oh, Pastor, if I had three, church, three horses, I, I believe I could give one to the Lord. Pastor feels he's on a roll, so now he goes in for the kill. He said, Jim Bob, if you had three pigs, would you give one of those pigs to the church for the potluck dinner on Sunday? Jim Bob's eyes got real narrow. He said, now, preacher, you know I only got but three pigs. It's like it was no longer th theoretical. It was real. And once it was real, I don't this is not funny. As long as we're talking about money and horses and things we don't have, we think that, yeah, we, we, would, be, we would be faithful unto death until it's going to cost us something that we have. The church of Smyrna was able to embrace martyrdom in part because they lost it all on the front end. Now, let me let you in on a secret. If you haven't figured it out, we're going to lose it all on the back end. But it's all going to burn. We're going to lose it all. 
Jesus says to them, you are poor, but because of how you have positioned your heart and your willingness to lay down your lives, you're actually rich because you have figured out what matters and it's something other than possessions. When you figure that out, you enter into a realm of wealth that you can't achieve any other way. Now, I love our country. I think the way that we govern is probably the best way to do it. I think it has offered the most freedom to the widest range of people, and we can work on it as we go, and it can get better, and it has gotten better, and it will get better. It's far from perfect. But America says, good for you. You can keep your stuff until you die. Jesus says you can lose everything in this lifetime, and you can have everything in eternity. The writer of Hebrews he describes it almost in a jovial way. He says in Hebrews 10.34, you jo joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. So they came for everything you had and it did not matter to you because you understood what you really had is on the other side. On the world scale, we are as a people affluent, but our affluence insulates us against nothing that really matters. Our walk with Jesus protects us from everything. In fact, it changes what we value so that we value what matters. For those of you who grew up without, okay, you just didn't have much. Just, it just wasn't there. You may never have more than your parents, but your kids do not need to grow up feeling poor because you can instill in them the values that the Lord gives us everything we need here and there. If you came from a family of means or you have amassed much over your lifetime through hard work, none of that really is an indicator of what you're worth. Because you can be poor and be called rich by Jesus and you can be rich and be called poor. In fact, in the next chapter, he talks to another church and just like he told the Smyrnans, you're poor, but you're rich. He tells the church of Laodicea in chapter 3, 17, I say to you, you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You can be poor and be rich, and you can be rich and not realize that you're poor. How can those two groups be so wrong about something that seems so simple? Because people don't understand the difference between true riches and poverty. Your balance sheet is not indicative of of your life's worth. It's just not. It tells you how much stuff you're responsible for. It tells you how big of a, of a dumpster your kids are going to need at the end of your life. They're not going to keep all that stuff. They're just not. This letter tells them that if you know Jesus and you're willing to walk with him until the end, you are rich even when you're poor. Even in the midst of your own personal trouble or tribulation, you are rich because you have invested well in things that matter. Investments grow on three factors, okay? Your initial investment, how much you put in, the interest rate or the rate of return, and time, just how long you leave it there. The higher the investment, the higher the rate of return, the longer you keep it there, the better off you are. Two years ago, on a lark, I bought $5 worth of Bitcoin. It is now worth $81. No one is impressed with that story. Everybody says, why did you only buy $5? Because I had five bucks, okay? It's all I have. But looking back on it, 
wish I'd have gone 10. Okay, I wish I'd have, I wish I'd have borrowed money from you. I don't know. I wish I'd have been smart about it. So I've got a mild return because I put in a mild investment. The, the rate's been great, and if over time, who knows what might happen here. But what are you investing in today that you wish you would have put more into at the end of your life? What, what are you really pouring into now that at the end of your life you're like, man, I wish I'd have gone even full more in. I wish I'd have put more than five bucks in. In Matthew 6, Jesus is giving really good life advice. And he tells him in 619, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Saying, Randy, you say I can't have nice stuff? No, you can have the nicest stuff you can afford, but do not go big on what will rust if you have not gone big on what will last. Don't get consumed with stuff if you haven't invested in what will matter for eternity. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I know your trouble. I know your poverty. And he knew one more thing about them. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. What is he talking about there? History tells us that at this time, there's a large community of Jews there drawn by the trade. However, these Jews who were critical of the church, he said, they are really not my people. And they have persecuted you greatly. He takes it time to assure them that while these people may be ethnic Jews, they really are not the people of God. Just because they have a sense of history doesn't mean that they have present-day equity with the Lord. They say they're Jews, and they are by blood, but they're not really honoring him. Now, Paul was a Jew of all Jews, greatly trained on the track towards stardom in the Jewish arena. But he even wrote in Philippians 3, verse 3, what would have been a wake-up call to these people. He said, for we are the circumcision, referring to Christians, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's like, we don't replace the Jewish people, but we're honestly honoring him in a way that he wants to be honored. It is possible for there to be people with great religious fervor and great religious heritage who have actually switched sides and are serving the enemy. And he tells them that he knows this and he sees their trouble and their poverty and the abuse that they are taking at the religious people of the day. And it'd be great if he revealed the plan of how he's going to rescue them, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great now for the Mission Impossible helicopter to lower and him to tell them how you're going to get out of all this? But in Revelation 2.10, he starts out, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have great tribulation, or have tribulation. I was reading this last night. Just every, every Saturday night before I call it a night, I just sit down, I read over the text again, and I read that verse, and it left off, off the page at me, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Guess what, Smyrna? Guess what, the bridge? Guess what, the church through history? You're going to suffer. It may be at the hands of rulers. It may be in the natural course 
of your life. It may be an illness. It may be a loss. But at some point, you are going to suffer. That is not a variable in this equation. But at the front end, he says, do not fear. Okay? That thing that you're facing, do not fear. Because you can suffer or you can fear it and still suffer. And a life of fear will cripple you. He says, guys, do not fear what you are about to suffer. You're going to be thrown into prison, some of you. You're going to be tested, and you'll have tribulation. You can almost hear the Smyrna ladies group that meets on Thursday afternoon. Did he say suffer? The men's group in the foyer asking, did I hear? He didn't. When he said prison, that was like, that was an analogy, wasn't it? No, this is a prophetic foretelling of what is coming to this church. And it is also a principle for us to live by that it is a false gospel that assures people that they won't suffer and that everything is always going to be perfect. Or what that leads them to is when they do suffer, they wonder if it was worth it. John 16, says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace because in the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, he will overcome the suffering and trouble that will come our ways in your lifetime. We live in this weird twin bubble of space and time, particularly in our nation and in the age that we live in. It's a twin bubble. It's a bubble of space in that we are fairly removed from significant persecution. Around the world, people are suffering for their faith. For years, North Korea has led, the, by every matrix, what it means to persecute Christians. Imprisonment, punishment, even death. A group called Open Doors studies a variety of factors of what it means to be a Christian in other nations. And for years, Korea has led by a significant measure in violence, in what it means for a Christian's private life, church life, community, family, any matrix you want to measure, North Korea has been far beyond any other place in the earth. Until the last two years when Afghanistan has said effectively, hold my beer, let me show you how to do this. And Afghanistan has suddenly matched almost North Korea in, in, in persecution of Christians. Pakistan is racing to catch up. Suddenly, it's not North Korea and the rest of the world. It's other nations of the earth. And we live in a bubble of space that allows us to think things like Starbucks not saying Merry Christmas is persecution. Some of you are going to be standing in heaven next to an Afghani believer. And they're going to tell you that they were martyred. Do not look at them and say, I know. Okay, don't do that because what we're now, we, we may get there, but we're not there yet. We're in this bubble of space right now where it happens in other places. And we're also in a bubble of time. Just because it hasn't happened to us, don't say it never will. The more accurate way of saying it is it doesn't happen to us right now. 20 years ago, few people believed that. I think it would be much easier to convince you today that the tracks are being laid for religious persecution in the United States. I, we just see, th it's not here yet. I'm not, 
I'm not putting ourselves with them. I'm just saying that the tracks are being laid for a stronger hand over our society. And what that ultimately leads to every time is persecution. Those, those tracks are being laid in the way of intolerance of alternative views. If you don't think the same way about things like healthcare and sexuality or personal responsibility, you stand a very real chance of being spoken against or even censored, which is all beta testing for persecution. That's how it starts. When the system is fully developed and more fully accepted, that target will narrow. We will be it. We're in a bubble of space right now, and we're in a bubble of time. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm telling you that to encourage you to invest in things that matter now. So when that day comes, your priorities are right, and you'll be able to say, yeah, I don't, I don't love my life unto death. I can lay down my life right now. I have nothing that matters on this side compared to what matters on the other side. He says, Smyrnans, let me tell you something. You are poor, but you're rich. You don't have much. It's cost you everything, but you are wealthy. We will have trouble. And he sees it and he knows. That's why we talk now about being a people of prayer and developing an eye to the future of what is coming. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We have no exemption from this. There's no caveat in the original Greek that says except for us. The letter to the church in Smyrna was not just history or context to be devoured. It is a picture of what Scripture indicates is coming to those who will love Jesus around the world. We, for whatever reason, have been given a window of grace to where things are easy right now, where we can get our hearts right, and we can start investing in things that will matter. I want to ask if Rachel would come. We live under the incredible blessing of able to determine our next steps. There are times to come when people will suffer a great disaster and will deny Jesus. That's the danger. That's the real thing. Revelation 2, 10 and 11, he closes to the Smyrnans with these words, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. Remember we talked about that word hear and how it ties to do. If you get this, do it. What the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second of death. Second death. By the grace of God, we are offered life that lasts forever and endures. Stand with me for a moment. I want to take just a minute here, go back into worship, and ponder that man who knows. Think about that Jesus who can see everything you're going through and will go through and can legitimately say with equity, I have been there. I understand. You can trust me with your future. You can trust me with your possessions. You can trust me with your life. Because if you can get over this and press through, I've got all eternity with you. Let's worship. Oh, oh. 
Jesus' name above every name. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Sing that again. Jesus, the name. Jesus, the name above every other name.